Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Good to be with you. Happy spring to your life. I hope you are fantastic. Let's talk some Doctrine and Covenants, okay? So last time, newly baptized Sidney Rigdon shows up at Joseph's house and is almost immediately called to serve as Joseph's scribe in Joseph's revelatory expansion of the Bible or the Joseph Smith translation, as we call it. Now, Right now in our history, they just finished receiving revelation on Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. This is the part of the Bible that talks about Enoch, but says basically nothing about Enoch other than he was hecka old, and that he walked with God, and then he was not. It's a mysterious and largely uninformative section of Scripture. Until Joseph gets a hold of it. He and Sidney took those five verses and received revelations that expanded that section from five verses to 116 verses. And you can find that uh, in the Pearl of Great Price running from Moses chapter 6 verse 25 to Moses chapter 8 verse 5. And it's deep stuff. It's about how God called and transformed Enoch from an ineloquent introvert to a bold prophet who gathered the willing, fought armies with the power of God and built a society that was so heaven-like that God couldn't resist checking them in early. It's amazing. So following this experience, John Whitmer said, and remember, he's the historian of the church at this time. He says, the Lord unfolded the prophecy of Enoch, the seventh from Adam. After they had written this prophecy, the Lord spoke to them again and gave them further direction. This further direction is Doctrine and Covenants 37. And Doctrine and Covenants 37 is pretty straightforward. It's pretty brief too. Behold, I say unto you, that it is not expedient in me that you should translate any more until you shall go to the Ohio, and this because of the enemy and for your sakes. And again, a commandment I give unto the church that it is expedient in me that they should assemble together at the Ohio. Behold, here is wisdom, and let every man choose for himself." I don't know if you caught that, but that's a big deal. God just said, move to Ohio. Everybody that's a member of the church, move to Ohio. Dang. Every time I bring up moving with my kids, they lose their minds. (laughs) Like just shouting, no! Like it keeps going like that. I'm not going to give you the full, full experience, but they keep just screaming no till I let go of the conversation. And that's usually not my kid's style. They're, they're usually down from anything from slot canyons to sushi, but the thought of moving is enough to start mutiny on the bounty. And apparently my kids are not alone in this because John Whitmer continues in his record. He says, a few days later, the time had now come for the general conference to be held, which was the 1st of January, 1831. And according to this appointment, the saints assembled themselves together. After transacting the necessary business, Joseph the seer addressed the congregation. The solemnities of eternity rested on the congregation. And having previously received a revelation to go to Ohio, he means Doctrine and Covenants 37, they desired to know somewhat more concerning this matter. It's like... Yeah, about that whole leaving our houses, friends, families, livelihood, and moving a thousand miles to the end of the world. Could you tell us more about that? (laughs) Therefore, John Whitmer says, the seer inquired of the Lord in the presence of the congregation, 
And thus came the word of the Lord, saying, and you get Doctrine and Covenants section 38. Now, in Doctrine and Covenants 38, God swipes away all the other little niggling details about moving, and he says, okay, this really is an either-or decision. Either you want to be in a relationship with me, or you want to be in a relationship with Satan. And you may be like them and might complain, come on, this is real life. It is nuanced and complex, and we're not children that need this sort of simplification. But I think sometimes we do. I don't know if you've ever been in a work meeting or a ward council before where we start talking about something and then it takes branch after branch in conversation and talks about nuance and exception until 45 minutes has passed and you don't even remember the original question and then the bishop or the boss will say, thank you all for your valuable input because they're way more polite than I am. And sometimes I think they just redirect the conversation because... um. Because <laughs> they can tell I'm about to start throwing stuff in this meeting because I'm mature like that. Uh, anyway, thanks for your valuable input. Let's get back to our objective and then they will lay it out. This is our goal, etc., etc. Here's what I'm saying. When we focus clearly on the objective, it has the power to cut through all the fog like a lighthouse and show us the way through the reef to safety. That is what God's really doing here in Doctrine and Covenants section 38. He's cutting through the fog. See, when people bring up their worries about leaving farms and family, that really isn't their root objective. Their root objective is to feel safe and secure. Like like they're worried about leaving their farms and families because it makes them feel insecure and makes them feel unsafe. What God does is just expose that the way to feel safe is not to be connected to a home or connected to certain friends. It's to be connected to Jesus. All those other things in our lives are just stop gaps that temporarily help us to feel secure. And, and he shows us that these stop gaps can actually open us up to more peril and more insecurity rather than the the safety that we think they are providing. Anyway, that's enough of me talking about it. Let's look at what it actually says. First, in Doctrine and Covenants 38, he starts out with why they should trust him, and by extension, why we should trust him. Even when he's asking us to do something that's super hard, like move. So in Doctrine and Covenants 38, verse 1, he says, trust me, because I am the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I am, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made, the same which knoweth all things, for all things are present before mine eyes. I am the same which spake and the world was made, and all things came by me. I am the same which have taken the Zion of Enoch into my own bosom. And verily I say, even as many as have believed in my name, for I am Christ, and in my own name, by the virtue of my blood, which I have spilt, have I pleaded before the Father for them. Verse 7, but behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that your eyes are upon, my mine eyes are upon you. I am in your midst. 
and ye cannot see me. But the day soon cometh, and that ye shall see me. And ye shall know that I am, for the veil of darkness shall soon be rent, and he that is not purified shall not abide the day. Wherefore, gird up your loins and be prepared. Behold, the kingdom is yours, and the enemy shall not overcome. And I hold forth and deign to give you the greater riches, even a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, upon which there shall be no curse when the Lord cometh. And I will give it unto you for the land of inheritance. Wherefore, hear my voice and follow me, and you shall be a free people. God, God's saying, trust me. I created you. I created this world. I love you so much. I spilt my blood for you. And I want to give you so much, like so much more, greater riches, a land of promise, freedom, my whole kingdom I want to give you. But in verse 11, he says, but all flesh is corrupted before me and the powers of darkness prevail upon this earth among the children of men in the presence of all the hosts of heaven, which causeth silence to reign and all eternity is pained and the angels are waiting the great command to reap down on the earth, to gather the tares that they may be burned and behold, the enemy is combined. And now I show unto you a mystery, a thing which is had in secret chambers to bring to pass even your destruction in the process of time. And you knew it not. This is fascinating warning. He's like, okay, on the one side, you got me. I love you. I spilt my blood for you. I want to bless you with great things. And on the other side, he's saying, hey, the powers of darkness prevail. All flesh is corrupted. The enemy is combined. It's going to bring to pass your destruction in the process of time. So, so let's break this down a little bit. What is God saying when he says all flesh is corrupted because the powers of darkness prevail? Well, if you go to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, which is a great thing to do for the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants because words change meaning over time. The word corrupt means to change from a sound state, that means entire, unbroken, whole, or perfect, to a putrid state. And a putrid state is a state of disorganization or dissolution. It also means to vitiate or deprave, to change from good to bad. Vitiate? When was the last time you used that in a sentence? Vitiate means to injure the substance or quality of a thing so as to impair or spoil its use and value, to render defective or to destroy, to waste or to spoil. This is interesting. So if we were to rewrite what he's saying, God's saying the powers of darkness, Satan, the adversary, the enemy, Satan is trying to injure you, to vitiate you, to injure you to the point that your use is wasted or spoiled. Whoa. So to say it again, the powers of darkness are trying to injure you to the point that your use is wasted. That's heavy stuff. And what about that line that says your enemy, Satan, and his forces are aligned to bring to pass your destruction in the process of time and ye knew it not? This outlines how Satan is injuring you right now. He is doing it in subtle ways in the process of time. 
so slowly, so gradually that you don't even realize that you are being bruised or impaired. It's like fruit. It can be bruised through a sudden and severe impact or it simply can be simply crushed by a heavy weight in the process of time. God seems to be implying that Satan prefers the subtle second path. So how is he doing this? How is he injuring you slowly in the process of time? Um, like you would be able to see how Satan's wrecking you, right? Like, I mean, you're not dumb. Well, here God is helpful too. First in verse 39, God warns to beware of pride. Then in verse 42, he adds, go ye out from among the wicked. So to put this together, God is saying Satan is injuring you, changing you through pride and association with the wicked and you don't even know it. Uh, let's look at this. What is pride? Well, President Uchtdorf said pride is sinful, as President Benson so memorably taught, because it breeds hatred or hostility, and it places us in opposition to God and our fellow men. At its core, this is key, pay attention to this, pride is a sin of comparison. For though it usually begins with, look how wonderful I am and how great things I have done, it always seems to end with, therefore I'm better than you. Pride is the sin of comparison. Elder Holland comments on this idea, and he talks about talking to our youth, and he says, help them escape our culture's obsession with comparing, competing, and never feeling we are enough. Man, like social media has given just rocket fuel to this idea of comparing and competing. Elder Uchtdorf goes on in his talk. He says, this sin of pride has many faces. It leads some to revel in their perceived self-worth, accomplishments, talents, wealth, and or position. They count these blessings as evidence of being chosen, superior, or more righteous than others. And dude, we have all been there in one way or another. This is the sin of thank God I'm more special than you. At its core is the desire to be admired, envied. It is the sin of self-glorification. Now, just a side note here real quick. Remember, the core desire here is to feel safe and secure. And so this desire to be admired, to be envied, helps us to feel this safety, this admiration, and this love, right? He says, for others, pride turns to envy. They look bitterly at those who have better positions, more talents, or greater possessions than they do. They seek to hurt, diminish, and tear down others in a misguided and unworthy attempt at self-elevation. When those they envy stumble or suffer, they secretly cheer. So, I'm curious. What is it for you that brings out your inner comparison? Maybe it's your outer comparison. I don't know. Is it certain people that get you to like be really comparative and competitive? Is it certain places? Are, are it certain activities or types of media or entertainment? And again, it's not just that you feel superior. It is simply comparing that is at its root. Pay attention to that. Think about that. Become aware of what God is warning you about. And what about his counsel to go ye out from among the wicked? What does it mean to be among the wicked? Like, I don't think you have to be doing drugs at a music festival in the desert to be among the wicked. It doesn't mean that, that you have to be even doing wicked things. 
It just means that there is a suggestion in your setting that takes you away from the love of Christ. It can be in music, movies, television, blogs, podcasts. Not this podcast. This is a good one. And friends, it can be like in thoughts or language, gossip, justifications, clothing styles, or any of a, just a myriad of things that separate us from our Father. Like, what is it for you? Honestly, the Holy Ghost has probably already made it this clear for you. And you're trying to say, shut up, Holy Ghost. <laughs> Enough of your nonsense. But what is it for you that puts you among the wicked? And honestly, how does it make you feel to be comparing, to be ranked like a cut of beef flank, to be appraised? What does it feel like to soak in a brine of subtle wickedness? Yeah, think about that. Dude, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. And I gotta say, if I'm not conscious, conscious, that it's so easy to get sucked into comparison all the time. And I got to say that being exposed to thoughts, language, and behavior like that, it doesn't edify. It makes me feel bad. It brings me down and I don't like it. So what do we do about this? Well, come back to Doctrine and Covenants section 38. In verse 31, he says that you may escape the power of the enemy. God's like, I know Satan's crushing you. I know he's coming at you in these subtle ways. And I know it hurts. I know it feels like a burden you're carrying a backpack. I want you to escape. He says, so you can escape. I gave you the commandment that you should go to the Ohio. And then in 37, he says, and they that have farms that cannot be sold, let them be left. What? That's the solution? He says, I want you to leave anything that's holding you back. That's it. That's simple. I, I get it. I, I know that that's easier said than done. But I doubt that what you're dealing with is on the same level as leaving your farm that you have built with your literal blood, sweat, and, and agony over decades. God is just uh, saying that the solution is let them be left straight up. Just leave it. If there is a show that you like, but that it puts you among the wicked, leave it. If there's a catchy song that is bringing you down, leave it. If you keep having thoughts of comparison towards somebody, leave it. What God is doing here is just clarifying. He's cutting through the fog. If you want me, uh, to be with me, you have to leave that. What I'm saying is that in order to have a meaningful relationship with someone, you have to give up other relationships. For example, and maybe this is not the best example, but I'm going to go back to Parks and Rec here. Uh, on there, there is a character named Tom Haverford. His wife divorces him. And don't worry, it was a green card wedding. And then my personal patron, St. Ron Swanson, starts a relationship with his ex-wife. In his jealousy, Tom pays for drinks for 43 women and ends up with none of them. Because unless you're Brigham Young, committing to 43 women is the same as committing to no women. If you're really serious about being in a relationship with Jesus, then there are some other relationships that you will have to leave. 
In talking about this topic, BYU professor of religion Hank Smith says something, uh, something that I think is good here. He, he ta- talks about this in terms of breaking up. Now, I, I really have no experience with breaking up. I have experience being broken up with, dear John, as case study number one. But breaking up, not a ton of experience. But if it helps you to leave these things that are holding you back, I have a couple breakup lines to put up your sleeve that you can (laughs) talk to Instagram or Real Housewives with. So here are some suggestions. Number one, you just start with the phrase, we need to talk. And everybody, even Instagram, knows how that ends. Let's just be friends. That's a solid classic, right? It's not you. It's me. I just don't like you. That's a Hank Smith one. So are some of these. Roses are red, violets are blue, trash gets dumped, and so do you. Oh! How about, my friends don't like you and I can't break up with them, so... Or, this is a classic. Are you a bank? Because I need you to leave me alone. Or, what about scripturally? You can go with Isaiah. You draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Or probably the, the best of all from scripture, Abinadi, touch me not or God shall smite thee. Yeah, those are good, right? What I'm saying is, if you got to play with it and be, be funny or silly about it, that's fine. But really, step out of any relationship that is holding you back. Now, I get it. I know this is a big ask. Why should you even do it? Like, what, is it? maybe it's too hard. Well, God says if you do, you will escape the power of the enemy. He says that you'll be able to receive his law, his pattern of living that, that has made him what he is. He says that he will endow you with power from on high, a gift that just wells up and keeps giving. He says that, that you'll be one with others. It'll give you this sense of belonging and safety that you long for. But maybe more than anything else, if you leave behind these things that are holding you back, this comparison, this wickedness, God's going to be able to give you something better. He says that he'll give you a place in his kingdom, the celestial kingdom, a place of happiness, peace, and goodness that you can't even dream of. Now, you may still be asking whether or not you can do it or whether or not it's worth it. But let me just give you a case study, right? The first case study comes from the next section, Doctrine and Covenants 39. It's addressed to a man named James Colville. Now, James was an experienced Methodist preacher and a medical doctor. And he came to Joseph and covenanted with the Lord that he would obey any command that the Lord would give him through Joseph the prophet. And so in response, God says, Behold, I say unto you, my servant James, I've looked upon thy works, and I know thee. And verily, I say unto thee, thine heart is now right before me at this time. And behold, I have bestowed great blessings upon thine head. Now that's pretty cool. Then God gives a caution. He says, Nevertheless, thou hast seen great sorrow. For thou hast rejected me many times because of the pride and cares of the world. Notice, notice, that is the same thing God is warning us about in the previous section when he talks about pride and cares for the world, synonyms for being among the wicked. 
But God is willing to give James a chance and willing to give us a chance despite our track records. He says, I have prepared thee for a greater work. Thou shalt preach a fullness of the gospel. Verily, thou art called to go to the Ohio. So basically, this is the exact same commandment he gave to the saints in section 38. Go to the Ohio. But James wouldn't do it. He rejected the word of the Lord and returned to his former principles and people. He couldn't let it go. So in Doctrine and Covenants 40, it's recorded, The heart of my servant James Colville was right before me. For he covenanted with me that he would obey my word. And he received the word with gladness, but straightway Satan tempted him and the fear of persecution and the cares of the world caused him to reject the word. The fear of persecution and the cares of the world. Ooh, that's interesting there. What do you make of that? Well, Stephen Harper has some useful stuff to say about this. He comments, he says, Some critics cite sections 39 and 40 as evidence that Joseph Smith was a fraud. They contend that these sections prove that Joseph's God did not know that James Colville would not obey. Theirs is faulty logic. Such critics must imagine that when God speaks, a person has no choice but to obey him. Perhaps they envision a variation on a Calvinist God, one who already determined what James could do and has a as a perverse parent locked him into a covenant-breaking course to damnation. Does anything happen that is not God's will? Some theologians thought not and concluded that God is the author of sin. Joseph Smith restored truth that dispelled that darkness. He distinguished between the sovereignty of God and the agency of individuals. Joseph knew too that God sees the secret springs of human action and knows the hearts of all living. But he did not make the erroneous assumption that knowing is the same as causing. I believe that God foreknew everything, but did not foreordain everything Joseph taught. I deny that he foreordained uh, foreordained and foreknew is the same thing, Joseph continues. God did not make James Colville break his covenant. Rather, the Lord gave James power to make and keep his covenant and the agency to decide for himself whether to make and keep the covenant. Revelations give us knowledge of God's will. They make us free. God gives agency by telling us what he wants us to do. Allowing Satan to tempt us otherwise and enabling us to choose between them freely. Section 40 explains that James Coville made and broke his covenant of his own free will. It is, more it is a more significant revelation than its brevity might suggest for few theological works are as profound and efficient as this one. Whew, sorry for the long quote. But I would agree with Brother Harper on this. Our God crucially honors agency. He refuses to make anyone partake in any good thing, including his love and salvation against their will. I've probably shared this analogy before, but I think it's appropriate. Like, it's like you show up at a party and Jesus is there. And the person who, who's hosting the party has made this delicious chocolate cake. 
Like, you know what I'm talking about. Not like some dry boxed cake, but like some Pinterest work of wonder that is just dense and moist and fantastic. And Jesus takes a bite of this and he's like, this is good cake. Somebody new enters the room and he's like, you got to try this chocolate cake. And they're like, I don't really like chocolate. And so before they know it, Jesus double leg takedown holds them in a figure four choke here and shoving <laughs> chocolate cake in their mouth. And he's like, eat the cake. Hey, that's not how Jesus works. God will force no man to heaven. He will not make anybody partake of his love and salvation against their will. Therefore, he will invite, he will entice, but he is never going to constrain. If you are to become the type of being he is, it will only be through your own free will. So um, God, God plans for all these contingencies, even plans for the contingency of sin through the blood of his son. It's, but he doesn't make it so that it has to be part of the journey. Like you can follow God and be completely free from this and, and be happy. And this is part of the elegance and power of God. He doesn't have to have everything go exactly like he wants it for him to be sovereign. The power of God is that he can still bring forth victory when it is just a straight up mess. He can bring beauty from ashes, life from death, gods from sinners. That's his power. This doesn't mean again that you have to sin. In fact, it's much better if you don't sin. You don't have to get punched in the face to know you don't want to get punched in the face. You're not that dumb, even though you may pretend to be otherwise. Fortunately, we have more examples than just James Colville for our case study. Basically, um, John Whitmer records in his record, after the Lord manifest uh, the above words, he means Doctrine and Covenants 38, through Joseph the seer, there were some divisions among the congregations. Some would not receive the above 38 as the word of the Lord, but said that Joseph had invented it himself to deceive the people that in the end he might gain gain. That part's crazy to me. Like, how's Joseph going to make money if they're leaving their money? Now, this was because their hearts were not right in the sight of the Lord, for they wanted to serve God and man. The conference was now closed and the Lord had manifested his will to his people. Therefore, they made preparations to journey to the Ohio with all they possessed to be obedient to the commandment of the Lord. Okay, dude. Here's our, our other side of the case study. God says, do you want to be on my side? And the people, the, some people are like, nope. But others are like, yeah, I'm all in. Among them is Emma. Like Emma is expecting twins at this point. And she told her parents goodbye and she is never going to see them again. Newell Knight says that he goes home and he says, having returned home from the conference in obedience to the commandment, which had been given, I gathered together with the Colesville branch and we began to make preparations to go to Ohio. As might be expected, we were obliged to make great sacrifices of our property. Having made the best arrangements we could for the journey, we bade adieu to all we held dear on this earth. We bade adieu to all we held dear on this earth. And in the early part of April, started for our destination. Ah, this is big stuff. Basically, you can kind of see that they're, they're beginning to li live these, these big covenants of obedience and sacrifice. Elder Ballard says, sacrifice allows us to learn something about ourselves. 
it helps us to know what we are willing to give to offer the Lord through our obedience. President Nelson says our, our highest sense of sacrifice is achieved by obedience to the commandments of God. Thus, the law of obedience and sacrifice are indelibly intertwined. These guys are amazing. So first, they, they traveled uh, north to the Erie Canal and then west along the Erie Canal. But um, they're not too far gone when Newell Knight receives a subpoena to return to Colesville. Uh, showing unity that they were commanded to do in Doctrine and Covenants 38, the whole company declines to travel until Newell returns. Meanwhile, his aunt, Electa Peck, which is kind of a cool name, fell and broke her shoulder, poor thing. Then when Newell returns, she gets a blessing from Newell. And she says, if I get a blessing from you, I know that all will go well with our journey for us and with me. And so the next morning she arose, dressed herself, and pursued the journey after the blessing. So they meet up with another group of about 50 saints from Waterloo. These are led by Lucy Mack Smith. Joseph had already uh, left by sleigh with Emma. And then he sends a letter back to Hiram to leave early with their dad because he'd heard news that somebody is going to attack Joseph Smith Sr. And so that basically leaves that small, tiny little firecracker Lucy Mack in charge. And they are also joined by groups from Fayette and Palmyra. So all in all, we got about 130 to 150 people traveling in a vast group on the Erie Canal. But when they get to Buffalo to set out across Lake Erie, they find that the harbor is all frozen. Uh, again, like this is practically Canada. It's a tundra, right? And so while they're waiting there, Lucy Mack gets kind of frustrated with the behavior of some of the saints. They're not sharing with one another. There's a sense of worldliness and complaining and just a general sense of self-centeredness. And she came at them saying, if we call ourselves saints, then we better start acting like it. She was also frustrated with, with some who just wanted to keep a low profile as Latter-day Saints. And she was having none of this blend-in business. She was ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ and she wanted people to know of his light and love. Thomas B. Marsh told her that her actions are going to get her mobbed before morning. And she replies, mob it is then, for we shall sing and attend to prayers before sunset, mob or no mob. Oh, I love this woman. So finally, she, is just, she just starts to exhort the whole party on her ship. She's like, where is your faith? Where's your confidence in God? Do you not know that all things are in his hands? That he made all things and overrules them? If every saint here would just lift their desires to him in prayer, that the way might be opened before us, how easy it would be for God to cause the ice to break away. And in a moment's time, we could be off on our journey. But how can you expect the Lord to prosper you when you are continually murmuring against him? And then somebody cries out from the shore, is the Book of Mormon true? And I love, like, she stops haranguing her people and she turns over the, to, the, the sh to the shore and she says, that book was brought forth by the power of God and translated by the same power. And if I could make my voice sound like as loud as the trumpet of Michael, the archangel, I would declare the truth from land to land, from sea to sea, and echo it from isle to isle until 
everyone in the whole family of man was left without excuse. I would sound in every ear that he has again revealed himself to man in these last days and set his hand to gather his people together in a goodly land. And then she leaves off lecturing that guy and she turns back to her own group and she's like, now brethren and sisters, if you will all of you raise your desires to heaven that the ice may be broken before us, and we be set at liberty to go on our way. As sure as the Lord lives, it shall be done. Then at that moment, they heard this bursting like thunder. The captain cries, every man to his post. The ice parts. It leaves barely a pathway for the boat that was so narrow that as the boat passes through, the buckets are torn with a crash from the water wheel. And she says, we had barely passed through the avenue when the ice closed together again and the Colesville brethren were left in Buffalo, unable to follow us. The bystanders were so sure that we would sink that they went straight to the office and had it published that we were sunk. So that when we arrived at Fairport, we read in the papers news of our own death. <laughs> so let's circle back to us. What is your case study file going to say about you? Will you leave it in New York? Or will you covil it up? I think you're going to leave it in New York. I think you're going to make it. Let me close with just one more suggestion to help you break up with whatever is causing you comparison or putting you among the wicked. It's to follow the example of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and bury whatever it is that's holding you back deep in the earth. Because you've seen it before. Someone breaks up and they say, uh, we're just going to be friends and it's fine. And the next thing you know, you walk into the basement and you find them making out. <laughs> like you just can't be friends with what's holding you back. You got to let it go so that you can have a more genuine relationship with the Savior. Along these lines, Hank Smith again tells a story about traveling to speak in another city. And the bishop hosting him takes him into his office and shows him a quilt. Now, the bishop is strangely really proud of a quilt that otherwise looks rather ugly. So Hank is like, okay. And then the bishop reads him the accompanying note. And in the note, it says, Dear Bishop, we took all of our immodest clothes and cut them up and made this quilt. Now at least they might keep somebody warm. That's a solid line. That's a breakup right there. I testify to you. That being in a relationship with Jesus will grant you the safety and love that no other thing will. Leave it in New York. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.